You're listening to a song called Believe It by Sound Principle. Don't worry, it isn't out yet, so if you don't know it, it's not like you missed it. But it does sound familiar, doesn't it? It's got that smooth, early 90s sound. You can almost imagine the singers synchronously moving their arms to the beat. The song was composed, produced, and sound designed by Errol Michael Henry, whose record label Intimate Records has been around since the mid-1980s. Errol has this incredible way of talking about how he approaches sound design. You don't do sound design. You don't start sound design. It's happening all the time. Mm. And what happens is that I need a reason to put the latest iteration together. So, Mm. you know, I've been listening to elements of sounds and elements of arrangements. And all of these elements that I've been in my mind, I'll put them in there. And and I will overlay the, if you like, the, the design in my imagination with the thing I've actually ended up making. That's the whole point. Sound design is what's in my imagination. There's nothing to compare it to. Back in April, Errol's daughter, Yasmin Jones Henry, published a story in the FT called My Father, the Pioneer of Sound Design. It was a very moving tribute. So we reached out to Errol. He hadn't shared his process with anyone before, but he agreed to trust us with his story. Errol is one of the very few black sound designers in Britain's music business. He's worked with some pop stars, but more importantly, he's held on as an independent music producer in a business that's gone increasingly corporate. And he's done it all on his own terms. I've generally stayed away from the, you know, the limelight, from the stage, from, you know, I did a lot of performing as a, as a youngster in a band. I was doing sessions when I was 11, so I was doing gigs and playing at shows and so so the things that people kind of want to do later in life I was pretty much over it before I was 12. (laughs) Today we're going to do something we've never done before. We're going to show you how this producer works by breaking down one of his songs and then I'll talk to him about how he's been able throughout the decades to stay true to his sound. Then, to make it a full music episode, I have invited music critic Arwa Hateron. She's going to give us her roundup of the top hits of the summer. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. When we decided to have Errol on the show, we knew this would be a special episode. We'd get to visit an iconic London studio that Errol frequents called Aradell. It's known for films like Harry Potter and The Full Monty. We would also get to use our sound engineer, Breen Turner, as a secret weapon. Breen scores our episodes. He has a deep knowledge of music. Obviously, since this is entirely audio, um, it'd be good to start off with, you know, if you could just give us like a visual description of the place, um, the mixing desk, you know, how how it is through your eyes, especially. Okay, Um, so here we are. We're at Airedale Studios, one of the finest facilities of its nature in the world. I'm sat before one of my favourite things in the world, which is a a Kadak console. This is a vintage board, though not many of them left in the world. This is one of the better models, and... um, it's a it's a, a complex machine, lots of different different channels, different ways to send and receive effects. So Errol is in the studio with Breen next to him, and Aradell's chief engineer, Nick Taylor, is on the computer. The studio itself is pretty nondescript. Grey soundproof walls, wall-to-wall carpeting, desk chairs. It overlooks a glass window that looks into a recording booth. 
But the main focal point of the room is this console. It's enormous, like six feet wide with hundreds of little slides and knobs. He shows Breen the song on the computer. It has 56 tracks on it. That is 56 layers of sound, one on top of another. So there's a 56 files Individual, in your in, yeah, yeah. To get it to 56, I have to bounce what I'm working with. Mm. If I've got 100 pieces of material, it still has to end up on a single track, which means I've got, I've got to decide at some point how all these individual pieces fit. So 56 is what we've bounced down to. That's the compromise. <laughs> yeah, that's the compromise, exactly. What Errol's about to do is something he's doing for the first time. He's breaking down the components of his song bit by bit. We're not peeking into how he normally designs sound. He's giving us a demonstration. He's showing us how he makes his secret sauce. So we're working with Believe It, the song we played at the beginning of the show. Errol's going to pull it apart and then put it back together again. I want to start with this piece because that's where I began on this particular record. Okay, so that sound doesn't make any kind of sense, really. But if I tell you what it's either announcing or putting together or tying together, it actually makes complete sense. So, uh, with transcripts. Yeah, with transcripts. So the thing I played you before is coming in. Okay. So that random part is precisely halfway through that segment. And it's going to tell some other instruments to do something else. Errol has chosen these clips in advance, and he sent them to Nick, who's now queuing them up on the studio computer in an audio editing program. And Errol is telling him which tracks to select and how long to play them. What Errol is saying is that the instruments talk to each other. So when he was recording each part, he left space for other parts to come in. The trick isn't to make each instrument sound great individually. It's to make the whole thing sound great together. Yeah, from bar 58. Silence, okay? Then cello arrives. So that random sound is talking to other instruments. So you're making music, but artists have a responsibility to provoke conversation and, and introspection. So life is, is constantly variable, but it's always the same in that it's always life, it's always changing. I can communicate that when, with six bars of music. Okay, 58. So you notice one part is speaking to the other. changes and we're done so the even at this point yeah the average listener yeah if they hear your track yeah that's probably not the part they're going to take away and remember they, and think that I is, doubt you know, that's even, the start that's I the root of the track they'll even hear any of this yeah. 
So the cello part, when the, the general piece is put back together, you won't hear it. Mm. So the question is, why bother? That's the job. Because somebody will get a sense of something going on without the detail, because it, it's evoking emotion. With all, believe it, believe it. So suddenly that cello part is in a conversation with the vocalist. Errol goes on for a while, dropping bits of wisdom. Like to be a good sound designer, you have to think about three-dimensional space. Music also has height, from bass to treble. There were five vocalists on this track, but doesn't it kind of sound like there are more? Errol did that on purpose, too. He had the singers do a take, and then he switched their positions, and then had them do another take, over and over again. Then he layered those tracks, too. Why do that? Is that to build more depth or...? Interest. Right. You won't know. Your, your ear won't know what's changing, but it's changing. Mm. And this idea of constancy but change is important to me because mm. I think otherwise you have boredom and I can't do boring. It doesn't tell you, I just can't do boring. Errol brings in a bass and something called a bell tree. There's a cool reverb effect that Errol uses to create not just an echo, but also rhythm. And all of that builds into a full-fledged song. One that's soulful and smooth and kind of sexy and has its own internal momentum. All of this comes so naturally to Arrow that I wanted to know what it's like to be inside his head, like where his creative decisions are coming from, and why he's been driven to do this for basically his entire life. So after my team visited Arrow at his studio, I invited him to ours. Arrow, it is so lovely to meet you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Lovely to meet you too. To start, I would just love to hear your story. Um, how did you first get into sound design? Was there like a moment that you realized you had an ear for music? I, I can't tell you the day. I don't remember when I made the decision. But at some point early, I mean, I must have been three, four or five years old. I heard the radio or the TV or the gramophone. Something was playing. I heard a piece of music. And somehow, either I understood it or mm. it understood me. But <laughs> something just connected. And I think to myself, you know what, I want to go to there. I don't I don't know what I'm listening to. You know, I don't know what style of music this is. I don't know what 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 these people are doing, but just because I also spent a lot of time outside, uh, I was very conscious of sound anyway. You know, the yeah. sound of of trees rustling, the sound of birds, the sound of, you know, cats making noise three gardens away. I, I was I found myself very much open to the influence of sound. It just so happens that music contained lots of sounds that interested me. So I ended up chasing that rather than becoming a sound effects guy for films or, or other kinds of sound design. Music was the thing that generally captivated me. Errol knew early that music was his path. He even got into the Royal Academy of Music at 11 years old, behind his parents' back. But his parents didn't want him in the music business, so he stayed in school and played music the rest of the time. 
As he got older, Errol got a day job and he worked nights at a music studio. He did that for two years for free. In the meantime, he started putting together his own music label. He figured that chasing the popular sound of the day wasn't going to make any sense because it would all be out of style before he got any good. So he worked on his own style. And it worked. He started getting calls from producers. Errol, so can you place us in that era in music? So around, so as you were starting to get these phone calls, um, what year was it? And like, what, what was big? I guess, how do you see your place in that scene as you were making music? I started making, if you like, music professionally in 1985, 86. Mm-hmm. At that time, in England especially, there, there's a thing called Acid House. It's just a shocking, high-tempo, 130, 140 BPM club music with loads <laughs> of kind of really bleepy, you know, internet kind of really te- techie sounds. It's just not music that I would personally listen to, but it was huge. Yeah. It was dominating the charts. Obviously, it was dominating the clubs. And that tells me after five minutes, that scene's going to burn out. I'm not getting involved. Mm-hmm. So I continued trying to make these uber sophisticated, soulful records in a marketplace that didn't want them. Because Errol's record company was called Intimate Records, Errol's sound got a name. People in the industry started calling it Intimate Sound. It combined the smooth, high-production sound of American soul with the rhythm of his parents' home country in Jamaica. One of his big breaks came when an American R&B group called the Jones Girls came to London to record an album. They were big in the 70s, and this was meant to be their comeback album. So I get a phone call, said, look, the Jones Girls are in town uh, doing a new album. Do you have a song for them? And I was like, yeah, of course I do. <laughs> yeah. uh, I didn't. <laughs> um, so they booked the studio. I mean, we had a conversation Sunday evening. The studio's booked for Monday morning. Oh, wow. Uh, I wrote the song on the way to the studio. Oh, wow. Okay. And the song called You Threw a Love Away. All of this was just organic growth. So I just I just kept making the records I was making in the way that I was making them, staying true to my values, staying true to my principles. Another artist that Errol worked with is Lulu. She was another top 40 singer angling for a comeback. The two recorded a song together called You Left Me Lonely. All the while, Errol kept producing his own work at Intimate Records, and under his artist name, Sound Principal. He says the goal was always independence. So he learned to play every instrument from bass to keyboard. He ran his own legal affairs, his own financials. He did his own press, which got noticed by big London DJs like Tony Monson. You know, I, I, I still now have very few friends, you know, very few friends, because people stop calling you when you never go out. People stop coming for you when they come around to your house and you're not going out because you're practicing. Mm. Um, and I was practicing seven days a week. Yeah. So my school friends stopped coming for me because I'd come around to my house. Are you going here? No. There's a party sometimes. You come? No. I always say no because the thing I was doing was more important to me than going out and, and um, you know, getting rat-faced, drinking or whatever people <laughs> do, normal people. I was chasing sound, different right. sounds, different things, learning to play different instruments. And I'm self-taught on all those instruments, which means all the mistakes a person can make, I made them all. Right. But Errol, you know, where did you get inspiration if you weren't going out? 
Well, because music and sound is all around you. Mm. So, so if you if you know, I was going still obviously by law they made me go to school, which is I think was a waste of the, the, the government's <laughs> money. Uh, so I'd walk to school, I, I'd be hearing sound, and there'd be radios on in the supermarket, or you know, waiting at the dentist surgeon, you'd hear the radio playing, and also there's always music on at home. There's music at you know at church. I, I was hearing yeah. music everywhere, mm-hmm. but I just wasn't going out to I didn't go out to clubs I wasn't interested in going out to hear what's going on in the clubs that's, that's gone on already whatever's in the mm-hmm. clubs was made six months earlier I mm-hmm. don't want to do recon based on what other people are doing Errol you know Yasmin wrote in her piece about you that that there were very few black designers in the history yeah. of audio innovation and in yeah. sound design and that she hopes that your story will help correct history that mm-hmm. it'll bring out more stories of black designers that have gone unnamed I'm curious where and how you felt that absence through your career, how you think about that. Well, first of all, my my project is called The Sound Principle mm-hmm. because for me, the sound is the principal thing mm-hmm. and sound has no color. So mm-hmm. I didn't feel it in the way that people might think because I wasn't looking for black inspiration or white inspiration. Mm-hmm. I was looking for good inspiration. Right. It sounded like her concern was like the structural inequality kept... Black people from going into the music. Oh, it's much in more way. difficult. It's much. Yeah. More, I mean, look, th- th- let's not be silly. It's much more difficult um, right. for black people to make it in the music industry, and more so for black men. Right. Much, much more so. I mean, the industry is endemically racist. A lot of the people at the top don't even deny being racist, and their view is, "What can you do about it?" Mm-hmm. My view was was quite a lot, and my thing was independence protected me from a lot of that racism. But there is no question that that any industry where you have people that can and do behave badly and it's allowed, then things like racism or sexism and all the other isms are going to be more extreme because it's not frowned upon. These days, Errol does a lot of advocacy. He has an organization that helps unaccredited artists get rights back to their work. And he does all that because he knows firsthand how much effort goes into making great work. And the question no one ever asks is, how is art paid for? I don't mean the piece of music that you buy. I mean what what people lose to learn to do it. Mm. And this is the thing. Art is paid for with life. Real artists essentially give up life, normal mm. life, in pursuit of an art that most people don't appreciate or respect. And you do it knowing that. So, mm. so, so I don't expect special privileges. I don't, I don't want to be noticed or recognized or admired or revered or any of those things. I'm just doing something that I do because I love it and I do love it and I'll do it again if I had to do it all over I'd do it again absolutely Errol thank you so much this again it was a total total honor my pleasure thank you you can find Errol's records online both under his artist name Sound Principal and under his label Intimate Records this summer, our music critic Arwa Hader saw Lady Gaga perform live. She thought she'd like the show, maybe not love it, but it turned out to be one of her favorite shows of the year. There was this one particular moment. Lady Gaga was singing Free Woman off her album Chromatica. 
She's wearing this gold puffy robe. She's surrounded by dancers. And she parades from the main stage to a smaller one in the middle of the stadium. She's kind of swishing through the crowds, singing this incredibly exuberant, exhilarating and empowering house-based track played live. It, it kind of explodes and projects out and you're, you're hearing it in communion with all these other people. And <laughs> it was quite extraordinary to watch her almost like engulfed by the audience. Free Woman is a quintessential summer banger. It's upbeat, it's carefree, it's got a beat drop. And that moment for Arwa encapsulated something about this summer in particular. It's really hit me over the last couple of months, just the sheer appreciation and joy that you feel around you when you're in a live crowd again and just see how happy and appreciative everyone is to be able yeah. to be back in this space is, is, is really an overwhelmingly lovely feeling. So I invited Arwa on to talk through her top hits of the summer. Arwa, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's brilliant to talk to you. I'm so excited for this. Um, so we would love to talk through basically the best music of the summer. And I thought that to start, maybe maybe you can tell me sort of like what you think the defining elements are of like a really hot summer track. I think if you had to kind of crystallize the defining elements of a you know classic summer track, it would be liberation from the everyday and reality. Yeah. Uh, and I also think it would be communal experience. It has to connect with listeners in a way where it immediately transports us to somewhere, a place of escape, a place of excitement, a place where, you know, we can release ourselves from the constraints of everyday pressures. Yeah. I was looking into sort of like some of the biggest summer tracks over the past 20 years or so. And mm -hmm. I just, there are so many bangers. There's like Crazy <laughs> in Love, Beyonce, 2003. There's Umbrella, Rihanna, 2007. Brilliant. I think that one of the ones that really sticks in my head is um, Despacito in 2017. Right, right. Like that was sort of the ultimate, the ultimate summer banger. Yeah. Um, and all the different variations on that that came out as well. I mean, that, that's, you know, they're all, they're really good examples of tracks that are very immediate and evocative and also at any point are going to kind of prompt this uprush to the dance floor, I think. <laughs> totally. All right. Well, let's talk through some of the year's hottest new album releases we would be remiss not to talk about Beyonce's new album, Renaissance. It mm -hmm. dropped very recently. Um, can you talk about the album first and, and sort of the impact it's had so far? You're absolutely, absolutely right that there was so much, so much of a build up to Renaissance and so much excitement around Break My Soul, the lead single, mm -hmm. um, and the, the samples that she's used on that. The album came out, um, yeah, early August, and it's it is a fantastic body of work. It yeah, is multi-layered. It is audacious. It is also very astute. Beyonce serves this material with such elegance, but you know it's also very savvy. It draws from all these club culture influences. It pays testimony to the integral influence of LGBTQ culture in mm -hmm. in mainstream culture. Obviously, the mainstream has sidelined and co-opted gay cultures for. Forever. forever. But I think we're at a point where it's more acknowledged. And um, she creates an album that, again, just feels extremely liberating to listen to, whether, you know, it's the uh, high energy disco elements on there or the house themes that are on Break My Soul. Arwa particularly recommends the Queen's remix of Break My Soul, which also features Madonna. 
the original version is a is a brilliant track but the queen's remix of break my soul takes it further down the catwalk mm-hmm. and and it opens with the immediately recognizable sleek intro to madonna's vogue and beyonce just really runs with it she is fierce she is just joyously camp it is just a really glorious <laughs> work of dance music Arwa's favorite track on the album right now, and mine, is called Move. It features the legendary Grace Jones and a new Lagos-based artist named Thames. I also wanted to talk to Arwa about Latin music, which over the past few years has been embraced globally. J Balvin, Maluma, Carol G., The biggest success story has been Bad Bunny. He's a Puerto Rican rapper whose music is described as part reggaeton, part Latin trap. But it's also sort of surreal and hard to pin down. Bad Bunny dropped a surprise album in May called Un Verano Sin Ti, A Summer Without You. And it's been blasting off speakers and out car windows across New York City all summer. I love it. I love the album. I love him. And, and someone like Bad Bunny as well, who's just a really excellent and really distinctive mm-hmm. vocalist as well. I, I love that he has such a characteristic style. It's quite, he sounds quite trippy in a, in a really, <laughs> in a really appealing he way. He has this low kind of monotonous, yeah, voice. And there's something quite mesmerizing about his delivery. This is Porto Mi Bonito from Verano Sinti. You wrote a piece for us in 2018 about how Latin music is becoming mainstream, but it feels like it's gone even more insane now. Like Bad Bunny is lapping the world's most famous pop stars on the charts. U.S. Latin music revenue grew 35 percent in 2021, which is huge. It's breaking records everywhere in in non-Spanish speaking countries. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think what happened a few years ago was something of a turning point in that what usually is the case is that mainstream industries have a wake-up call. Mm -hmm. All this creativity and talent goes on and and it has its audiences. And particularly when it's not English language based, suddenly there's a tipping point where they realise actually there's a huge audience for this and also there's potentially huge revenue to be made. Mm -hmm. So with the kind of turning point a few years ago, a big part of that was the fact that a lot of tracks were being kind of played on YouTube, were kind of really spiking on YouTube. And mm. so their numbers were evident. I, I would actually hope that we're moving beyond like English being a lingua franca of yes. um, pop music. So we've had a lot of fun releases this year. Beyonce and Bad Bunny, Lizzo, Harry Styles, Burna Boy. But there have also been political ones. In August, Pussy Riot released a new album. You know Pussy Riot, the Russian feminist punk collective. They'd play unauthorized guerrilla gigs in public places. Most famously, they staged a set in 2012 in a Moscow cathedral to protest the links between Russian President Vladimir Putin and the Orthodox Church. It put some of the members in prison for nearly two years. So 10 years on from that that sentencing or that verdict, Matriarchy Now is a new album that's been released it's, it's actually about seven tracks so it's it's short 
it's a fairly brief release, yeah. but it's also a very punchy and enjoyable and fun in how it takes sort of pop music and makes it sort of a subversive force. The result is a bright, surprisingly Euro-poppy album. Some of the songs were produced by Swedish artist Tuvalu, including this one. Yeah, I mean, the first track, I think, is uh, Princess Charming. And it's, yeah, it's kind of coquettish and sweet in tone, but very spiky and salty in its content. And, and it's basically about ownership, empowerment, power balances, it, it takes a form that is often construed as being quite childlike, it's bubblegum mm. pop, but it's really not childlike in its content. And and I like I like that it kind of is quite stealthy like that. Arwa has tons of other recommendations. I've put them in the show notes. She's also excited about the autumn release of the British Japanese singer Rina Sawayama. And also, there's this one other artist that she really wants us to know about. Do you know what else is coming out later this year, actually, that I've got to say on a very, very different musical tip, which I'm really excited about? Um, yeah, tell me. Surprisingly for me, I am excited to hear an album by an amazing American soprano, Julia Bullock, mm. who's based in, in Germany. But she, I mean, she's already been, you know, highly acclaimed um, on, on the classical and opera scene, but she hasn't uh, released an album yet. And she will release an album later this year. And it just draws from all these different influences. And I've I just think she's just an extraordinary persona. She connects worlds that you wouldn't have thought had an affinity. And for someone like me who felt very excluded from classical and opera growing up, yeah, she she presents what feels like an epiphany. So, you know, what is to come will span a multitude of genres. Arwa, this was so fascinating. It was really fun for me. Thank you for your time. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next week, we're talking about the streaming wars with Chris Grimes. And then bees. Jonathan Guthrie puts a monetary value and a very high one on the debt we owe them. Special thanks this week to Aradell Studios, to Nick Taylor, who helped with the session, and to Errol's daughter, Yasmin. Also, a big shout out to Lulu Smith, our producer, who produced that recording. If you want to say hi, we love hearing from you. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. The show is on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I ask a lot of questions that feed into the show on my Instagram. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes, alongside a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekendpodcast. Make sure to use that link. A reminder that the FT Weekend Festival in London is coming up. This is your last chance to get tickets. It's on Saturday, September 3rd at Kenwood House on Hampstead Heath. We're really excited to meet you. I will be there. I'll be interviewing Jamaica Kincaid and Inuma Okoro. We also are going to have a table set up with some mics. So if you want to be on the show, you can. You can buy a ticket at ft.com slash ftwf. That link and a discount code, especially for listeners of this show, is in the show notes. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here's my incredible team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko, with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer. And special thanks go to Cheryl Brumley. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll find each other again next week. <laughs>